Please uh, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter one. Our focus tonight will be one through seven, but we'll read through verse eleven. So first Timothy one, beginning at verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the, for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Amen. The last time we were in First Timothy, we uh, went through kind of a history of the um, relationship between Paul and Timothy and did a little bit of work through uh, Acts and uh, kind of did all that relationship <clears throat> uh, that they had and a little bit of a history that was behind that connection that Paul and Timothy had. And what we're doing tonight uh, was intended to be done uh, the day we lost electricity. So you're, you, I know you've been chomping at the bit to get to this portion since then. For the last month, you've been thinking about it, haven't you? <laughs> but at any rate, we're going to look at this portion, and the focus is going to be on the command to command certain ones not to teach a different doctrine. But we begin with the fairly typical introduction. Uh, this isn't really all that new to you, but it, it's worth us at least uh, covering, going through it. <clears throat> Paul uses the typical uh, framework of a first century letter. Uh, you and I might think, Paul, Timothy knows you. You don't need to do all this. But Paul's writing this letter not just for Timothy, even though it's to him. Obviously, he knows it's for the church. Um, and so he's using these typical forms uh, to communicate some things, to establish his authority, and to establish his relationship with Timothy uh, so that he can communicate 
his truth. And so in these first three verses, we have three portions. Paul introducing himself. Uh, second part is Paul addressing Timothy and describing him in, in a very important way. And then the third part is the typical salutation. So we won't take a long time on this, but just to, to review it. Uh, verse 1, Paul introduces himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So he identifies himself by name, he identifies his role as an apostle of Christ Jesus that establishes authority, so that even to Timothy, even though they have a relationship, uh, Paul has an authoritative position with Timothy, and so he should heed what Paul is going to be saying. Uh, Again, to be sure, they're very friendly, they know each other well, but he has this authority. Uh, But he's an apostle by the command, uh, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, as I was studying this, there's nothing dramatic in that particular phrase, but I found something kind of interesting. It's interesting to me. Maybe it's interesting to you too. Paul uses or this phrase, Christ Jesus is found 90 times in the New Testament, where the title comes first, Christ, and the name comes second, Jesus. And it's ex- used exclusively by Paul. He's the only one that uses that phrase, Christ Jesus, in the New Testament. The reverse of that, Jesus Christ is used 130 times, excuse me, 132 times, and it's used by both Paul and other writers. So what is, what is the significance, if any, of Paul using this particular form of it? We don't know. There's, there's no real explanation or indication of it. Uh, that he, why he would use the title first, uh, maybe the symbol of his authority, the authority of the one who he's connected to, and then the name, the relationship. But at any rate, it's just an interesting usage of Paul alone to use that combination of phrases. And then he explains his commission uh, in two ways, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So the command comes to him as an apostle from two sources. One is God the Savior. Now typically we think of God, the, the word Savior is referring specifically to Jesus Christ, and it often is, very, very often is. But in this text, and in certain other texts, it seems here either to be referring to the Father or to God in general. Uh, as our Savior. And of course, God is the Savior. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all involved in our salvation. But you have the distinction between God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. And both are significant part of Paul's commission because he's a minister not of his own opinions. He's a minister of the gospel. And as a minister of the gospel, he's presenting uh, the plan of salvation that God has accomplished and planned. And along with that, uh, Christ Jesus, our hope. You and I face many situations, many situations in our world that seem hopeless. 
And the fact that Paul goes forward as an apostle of Christ Jesus, he does so with hope. He's confident of God's work, uh, both in his own ministry and in the work of the gospel as it goes forward. So he's very, very confident of what God will accomplish through his service as a as an apostle of Christ Jesus. So then verse 2, the very first part of it, gives us his address to Timothy. He says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now we know that Timothy is not his natural child, but he's his spiritual child. And uh, remember when in his the end of his first missionary journey, uh, he was in um, Timothy's hometown, and probably, we're not told he did, but we probably met him then. And then as he goes, Paul begins his second missionary journey, he goes back there to encourage the churches, and that's when we're told in Acts uh, that this relationship between Paul and Timothy developed. <clears throat> but he calls him his true child, his genuine child in the faith. Uh, genuine, kind of a, a similar word to knowledge. He's, he's committed to um, knowing Timothy. He's a genuine child of his in the faith. He's no Demas who has forsaken Paul, but he's one who genuinely follows Paul and is connected to Paul and is faithful to him. Uh, just to kind of run down some of the different ways Paul refers to Timothy, you don't need to turn to these, but in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17, he refers to him, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child. So we have very tender relationship between these men. <clears throat> in uh, Philippians 2, he refers to Timothy as a son with a father. He's the father, Paul is, and Timothy is his son. Uh, we have in 2 Timothy 1, he refers to him as my beloved child. So these ways of describing Timothy just communicate a very deep personal relationship between these two men. Paul is the mentor, and, and Timothy is the one being mentored by Paul. And then the third part of this introduction is the uh, salutation, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have the typical uh, threefold uh, salutation, very common in your hearing. Grace, God's unmerited favor, his mercy, his compassion towards those who are guilty, and then peace, <clears throat> that blessing that results from uh, the work of God's grace and the, the boundless mercy that he has towards us. So this introduction, very typical things, you're familiar with them, I'm not telling anything new, but they remind us to kind of build a foundation for uh, the letter that will follow. But now Paul gets into his first command. And so the command from verses 3 through 7 is this command for Timothy to forbid certain people to teach other doctrines. So, for example, in verse 3, the beginning of uh, verse 3, as I urged you when I was on my way to Macedonia, uh, do stay on at Ephesus. So 
Paul had had his first Roman imprisonment and written several epistles from that place, and he had been released. And during this uh, release from that first Roman imprisonment, he's traveling in uh, the uh, Near Eastern region, Turkey, Greece, Macedonia, and he lets he sends Timothy to Ephesus to continue the work there. And then he's on his way to Macedonia, and he has urged Timothy, I want you to stay on at Ephesus. There's a lot of work that's uh, pressing there. And so Paul is urging Timothy to, to stay busy with the work that he's assigned him to do and given him to do. And this is the command, this is the work that he's been given in verse 3, in order that you may charge certain individuals not to teach differently, nor to devote themselves to endless myths and genealogies. So a main task of Timothy there in Ephesus was to charge certain individuals not to teach other doctrines. Orthodox, teaching straight out of the Bible, is what we're commanded to do. These people, these teachers, were heterodox. They were teaching other than the doctrines in the way of truth. And so he's to command them. It's interesting, at this point, he doesn't name them. He just says, charge certain individuals, and it's a very vague term. And um, you wonder why. Why didn't he name them? It's not that Paul was afraid to name names. Uh, if we think back on Philippians chapter 4, he pleads with Euodia, and he pleads with Syntyche, and he appeals to his fellow yoke fellow. Now, he gives him just a title. He doesn't really give his name. But he's naming two women who are at odds to agree in the Lord. So it's not that Paul is afraid to name names. What is Why does he seem to be reluctant here? Well, it may be because he is going to name them later on. Uh, look down at verse 19. He continues the thought of um, people who have gone astray. Verse 19, holding faith in a good conscience, this is urged to Timothy, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I, hand, I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So these certain ones probably included Hymenaeus and Alexander, but uh, for whatever reason, Paul left it kind of vague. Command, charge these uh, certain ones that they quit teaching other doctrines. And this was very significant to Paul. Turn, turn to Galatians chapter 1 for a moment. We'll come back here to 1 Timothy, but Galatians chapter 1, 6 and 7. Remember Paul writing Galatians is writing to with the problem of the Judaizers in his mind who were teaching uh, false ideas. And he, he really hits it strong in verses 6 and 7. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. 
Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And he's going to pronounce anathema on them for their false teaching. So here Timothy's dealing with a very similar issue. People have come in and they're teaching other doctrines, false doctrines. And he specifies them a little bit in First uh, Timothy 1, 4, uh, not to, they devote themselves to endless myths and genealogies. They're wandering away from the basic gospel and they're getting caught up in all these um, fanciful things. And it's a sad thing, but it happens. People get tired of the basic truth. They get tired of uh, the basic doctrines that we preach over and over and over again. And they say, you know, we want something different. We want something new, something special. And uh, that's what was is happening. Here you're in First Timothy, just to go down to chapter 4, verse 7. We have the continuation of the thought. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself to godliness. Uh, turn to 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4. <clears throat> he refers to people, 2 Timothy 4, verse 4. He refers to people that will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And then one other passage is Titus 1.14. Titus 1.14, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And commentaries will be helpful in giving an idea of what he might be talking about. Uh, Philip Ryken in his message on this talks about that a little bit. Some of the options are, <clears throat> there was a book written in 125 B.C. called The Book of Jubilees and a similar one written in 70 A.D. called The Biblical Antiquities of Philo. And what these books do is they take the genealogies of the Old Testament and they expand on them and read into them and develop stories about all the people. So they're taking Old Testament texts, but they're making them fanciful and expanding them and uh, developing these extended genealogies, and Paul would refer to them as Jewish myths. It's not part of Scripture. They're wanting something new, something exciting. <clears throat> it's been that case ever since. Paul was not surprised by this because he had warned the Ephesian elders in his last message to them, I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And this danger has been the church's danger ever since. Uh, we have the Book of Mormon, which is a fanciful presentation of things to draw away, maybe even using some biblical terminology to draw away people from the pure gospel.
<clears throat> we had uh, a group called the Jesus Seminar uh, not too long ago, and they made much of the Gospel of Thomas. It was a book a uh, that supposedly came from Thomas, which it did not, uh, written somewhere between 150 and, and, and 350 A.D., <clears throat> and it too has fanciful things in it. Uh, to draw... God's people away from the basic Christian doctrine that we're to have. Uh, there's another book that Philip Ryken refers to. It's called The Bible Code, written in 1996, much more closer to our time. And the author, he says, rearranges the letters of Genesis and uses them to predict future events. These are some of the things that he predicted. The First Gulf War, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the election of Bill Clinton, <clears throat> using this supposed Bible code. Kind of reminds you sort of a, uh, well, attempted Christian Nostradamus with all kinds. You can just about make him predict anything um, if you take his words. Of course, more recently to us, there was the Da Vinci Code by... Dan Brown, and many people got uh, caught up in that. And it's the same falsehoods that have been told for millennia. There was nothing new in that book. And uh, you might like his fiction, but it's fiction. Um, that's all it is. And there's the danger, and has been the danger always, to be drawn away from the basic truth. Because it's not exciting. It's not fresh. It's not new. It's old. But the Bible tells us to stick to the old paths because they're the safe paths. Uh, they're the, the place we should walk. And Paul here urges Timothy, charge these certain individuals to quit teaching other doctrines. <clears throat> They've wandered away from the truth. Uh, they've lost their way. <clears throat> they've abandoned that which would help them um, pursue godliness. Um, he says here in verse 4, after endless genealogies, they promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. <clears throat> you see... What God wants of us is not to worry about new things. He wants the stewardship of faith is literally the law of the household. And what God wants us to do, what he wants his servants to do, what he wants us, his church to do, is to maintain the law of the household, which is God's law, God's truth. He wants us to hold fast to those things. Uh, the... Um, uh, he speaks in verse 7 of these people. They desire to be teachers of the law, but they don't succeed. Uh, they, they want, they, and let's accept their ambition as genuine. So they want to be teachers of the law, but they've gotten caught up in these endless genealogies and these Jewish myths. And so they've wandered away from the faith. Um, <clears throat> they cannot accomplish what they seem to want. Uh, he tells us the consequence of this teaching 
Is it um, promotes speculations? Uh, other translations have foster disputes rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. To order the church, to order our lives according to the word of God. That's what God desires. That's what Paul wants of Timothy in charging these men. <clears throat> the uh, Before I come back to 5 and 6, just to pick up 7 again, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. <clears throat> so they're very bold, very confident about what they have to say. The NIV translates that, but they don't know what they're talking about. And that's the danger of these false teachers. They really don't know what they're talking about. And they are uh, wandering away from the faith. Um, the last part of verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. They're not following the path. They're not observing what God wants them to do. <clears throat> and that's the consequence for them personally and for the church who would listen to them. But now Paul helps us to appreciate why he's giving this charge, why he's giving this warning, why he's giving Timothy this responsibility. And that's where verse 5 comes in. He says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, this is the goal that God has for you in your Christian life. Uh, these three things, the uh, aim of the charge is love. Love for God, love for one another. Uh, that's God's goal for us, is to live in love. We heard a lot about that in First John. That's a, a key part of the relationship we have as a church and as members of the church, that we love one another, care for one another, the aim is uh, <clears throat> of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. Uh, walking away from the, the core doctrines of the truth allows our hearts to be corrupted by all kinds of things. And God wants you and I to live with a pure heart, sanctified by Christ, sanctified by the gospel, sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart. this That's the, the purpose of, of true doctrine. <clears throat> a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A faith that's genuine, uh, that's not false, that um, with, is without hypocrisy. And all of these things are significantly important. That's the goal God has for us. <clears throat> now, there are some Christians who, they might agree, well, we ought not to teach other doctrines, but they, they don't want, they're not so concerned about doctrine. They want to know the practical things um, about living the Christian life. And one of the mistakes made with that kind of thinking I don't want doctrine. Uh, just tell me 
how to pray, how to live, how to do this or that. The problem is doctrine, sound doctrine, is the foundation for all uh, Christian obedience. It's not that we need less doctrine and more practical Christian living. We actually need more doctrine to build the foundation of our lives out of which will grow faithful Christian living. It's not less doctrine we need, it's more sound doctrine that we need. So that testing everything we hear, testing everything that comes to us, we can test it according to that sound doctrine and determine the falsehoods and spot the counterfeits so that we might pursue godliness in the way that he's described, in love, the pure heart, a good conscience, and a sound faith. Those grow out of our knowledge of God and knowing him truly and fully in our hearts. And so Timothy has been given this charge, and you and I can hear that and allow ourselves to be instructed by it as well, to be alert uh, to false teaching and to hold fast to sound doctrine and experience the joy of the Lord as we apply that in our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the your word that warns us of those things that can draw us away from the purity of faith. We pray, O oh Father, that we would be alert to those who uh, present truths that are other doctrines, doctrines that are not part of your pure and true word, that we might be alert and warned by that. And Father, that we might follow you uh joyfully with pure hearts and uh, clear clear consciences and, and love for one another. May you be glorified as we honor you in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.